from time to time on Sundays uh, when I get up here, I thank our musicians, um, which I would like to do that again today. Um, and then I'd also like to add a thanks to our children's ministry volunteers this morning. I know many of you out here serve uh, faithfully in children's ministry. Um, and the reason for that is because there are a lot of kids over there <laughs> this morning. Um, the nursery people were looking at us wide-eyed as we walked through, as the service was starting, and I went up to the toddler room to see how things were going, and we had three volunteers in there, and they were doing a great job, and there were lots of kids in there. So that's a wonderful, wonderful thing, and uh, I just, I don't say it enough to our children's ministry volunteers and servants, we do thank you for what you do, and as I'm thanking you, let me just reiterate, it's not babysitting. That's not what we're trying to do. Um, we have the opportunity uh, when you come and bring your children on Sundays uh, to pray for them, uh, to love on them, and to teach them the Word of God. And that's what we're uh, trying to do and hoping to accomplish in those times, is give them the scriptures, tell them the stories, familiarize them with God's Word um, so that the gospel can begin to work in their little hearts and they don't remember a time when they didn't hear about Jesus and believe in God. And, uh, and that's what we're going for. So thank you for those of you that do serve in that area. It is a, a vital area and very, very important. Um, and I'll just say at the end, if you are interested in serving in that area, uh, Trevor would love to hear from you. Um, and I would too. So uh, let me let's just put that out there for you this morning. All right, John chapter 18 is where we're going to be. Let me pray for us before we get to this text. God, it's our privilege again to approach your word. Thank you that we get to do this week in and week out. What an unbelievable opportunity we have every week to calm our hearts, to come in, to sit down, to worship you in song, and then to worship you as we sit under your word and respond to your word. I pray this morning that it would be clear that we would understand and that you, as we're sitting under the sound of, of my voice, and then as the Spirit is working this morning, while we're in this room together, I pray that you would change us, conform us, alter our desires, move us to be more like Christ through our time together. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Our family... Uh, at times, we'll get into certain television shows um, that we like to watch, and right now, we are enjoying a, uh, a new season of a recent PBS show called All Creatures Great and Small. I am sure that some of you are aware of this show. Um, it's beautifully shot and well-acted and uh, just a delight uh, to watch. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it tells the story of a veterinarian who worked in 1930s rural England, and his name is James Harriet. It's a, based on a true story. There's a real guy named James Harriet that uh, served as a veterinarian over there in the 30s, and then he wrote a series of books about his experiences. Um, and they're, they're really delightful books and uh, a really a great show um, about what, what he experiences over there. In the series, he's a very young man, he's fresh out of school to be a vet, and he joins the practice of uh, an older vet named Siegfried. And Siegfried is uh, maybe my favorite character in the show. He's, if you're familiar with the show, he's a little bit grumpy, 
and he likes things done in his way. He's had his practice for a long time, and he likes things to be done in a particular way according to what he thinks is best. You could basically say he's a control freak. And as the show goes on, we're in season three now, he, uh, he has James working for him and then his, uh, his brother's working for him as well, but James is getting better and better. He's more experienced, he knows what he's doing, and Siegfried realizes that he's either going to have to make James a partner in this practice and therefore give him more control and pay him more money, or he risks losing him and the relationships that he has with the, the farmers and their clients and all of that. And so uh, it's really um, an interesting dilemma that he faces and he struggles with, and he has to wrestle with that. Is he going to give up some control, or is he going to end up losing his top vet assistant here? Now, my guess is, as I describe that, that there are some, many of you who often struggle with issues of control. Maybe that is a dominant theme in your life where you like to be in control and you need to be in control. Or maybe there are just certain areas in your life where you really need things to be done in the way that you like them to be done on your timetable. And it's a very common human desire. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with our limited capacity as human beings, and we want to be able to have power and control when it's available to us. Now, here's a question for you to consider this morning. If you suddenly had the ability to control the circumstances around you as you saw fit, I mean, you all of a sudden had that ability. You could control things. You could make things go the way you wanted them to go according to your desires, what would you do with that ability? What would you do with that control? What would your priorities be in that situation? There's only been one human being who had the type of control and the type of power that I'm describing this morning and that many of us would want in our lives. And what did he do? with that control, with that power, with that authority. Let me remind you of what his goal was as he had all of that authority, all of that power, the ability to manipulate circumstances anytime he wants to. Let me remind you of what his goal was with that. Look at John 17, back up from 18, in the last verse in the chapter. Again, this is the prayer of Jesus in John 17. He's expressing to us his inmost values and his inmost desires. And look what he says in verse 26. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus has all the control, all the power, all the authority in the universe at his disposal. And what does he want as much as anything else? He wants God's name to be known by us, by his disciples. And not just that God's character and his name would be known, but more specifically, he wants us to understand clearly the love that God has for us. He wants the love between father and son to be in us and for us to live out of that love. That's what he wants. That's his desire. 
And Jesus uses his control, his power, and his authority to make it absolutely clear to us that God loves us as his children. How does he do that? What is the clearest and most explicit way that Jesus shows us the love of God? Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All the power, all the authority, all the control, and this is what he does. And I think it's no accident that Jesus' prayer ends this way, talking about us knowing and experiencing God and his love for us, and then we move immediately into the events leading to his death. His love is shown to us most clearly in his giving up of himself for us on the cross. And if his death puts God's love on display for us, if that's where we find it, if this morning, if you want to know God's love for you, what's the first place you should go? It's to the cross. It's to Christ's sacrificial death for you. If you want to know that, then we need to go there and we need to understand Jesus's death. We need to understand in detail what's happening as he goes to the cross. We need to gaze at Christ on the road to the cross. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And that's what we're going to do in the coming weeks as we get into this final chapter in his life in the book of John. So in John 18, 1 to 27 today, here's what we're going to see. Two foundations to solidify, to shore up, to hold up our understanding of Christ's death. That's what we're going for. Two foundations, basic realities of Christ's death that will help us to solidify our understanding of his death. And when our understanding increases, then that's the place where we know God's love for us more and more. It's the picture into, the window into his love for us. And the first one of these you can see listed there is, though having all authority, Jesus laid down his life for his people. This is in verses 1 through 14. So look with me starting in chapter 18 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words. All right, so he's connecting us back to what's come before. What words? The words that he's given to his disciples in John, I, I think the whole upper room discourse. John 13 through 17. He's told them verbally about his death. He's promised to be with them through the Holy Spirit. And he gave them these words somewhere in Jerusalem in this upper room on the night before his death, on the night where they were celebrating Passover together. Perhaps some of them, some of these words had been spoken to the disciples as they were leaving the upper room, as they were walking out of Jerusalem but at this point in verse 1, you can see there, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So sometime, very late in the evening, they leave the upper room. Maybe they're still having conversations and Jesus is still teaching them. And at some point, they cross the border and go out of Jerusalem, and they go down into this valley that separates Jerusalem, the city proper, from the Mount of Olives, and they cross over this brook, Kidron. 
Now, an interesting side note here, the Brook Kidron would have carried the waste from the temple sacrifices out of the city. And so there's every reason to think here that as Jesus steps across the Brook Kidron, that some of the Passover lambs that were being offered, their blood was flowing under his feet as he walked across to the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested and tried and killed as a Passover lamb. Amazing thought there. But regardless of what's happening with that, they go across the Brook Kidron and go over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 1 tells us that there was a garden. This, uh, this garden that they entered into, had uh, it, it phrases it as if there are walls around it. They enter into this garden. This possibly could have been something that was owned by maybe a rich benefactor of Jesus and his group of disciples, and he allowed them to use it. We don't know exactly, but clearly this is a place that they had been to before. Look at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So this is a common meeting place for Jesus with his disciples, and so they head out of the city and to this place in the evening. Now, it mentions Judas in verse 2, and the last time we saw Judas was all the way back at the beginning of the upper room discourse in chapter 13. Why don't you flip back there, chapter 13 and verse 26. I want to remind you of this. At the beginning, after Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, He gets into this conversation regarding one who's going to betray him, and look at what he says in verse 26. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. So Judas leaves filled with Satan's influence and he leaves the Passover meal to go and do his evil work. And now after all of Jesus's words and as they're leaving the city, Judas comes back into the picture. Look at verse three. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. I want you to notice in this verse there are two groups of soldiers here. Pay attention to that. First of all, John describes one group as a band of soldiers. This would have been a group of Roman soldiers. And the way the word he used here indicates that it's a tenth of a cohort A cohort would have been thousands of Roman soldiers, and this is a tenth of that number, and so it's anywhere between 200 and 600 well-armed, well-trained Roman soldiers. Then there's another group that is also here with Judas. Look what it says. It says some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. There were Jewish soldiers who obviously weren't Roman, who were under the authority and control of the chief priests, Uh, And the Pharisees think of these guys as temple guards. And so you have a group of Jewish soldiers here with Judas, and you have a pretty big contingent of Roman soldiers. 
Now, the Roman soldiers come along because Jesus was clearly popular. I mean, he had entered the city a little less than a week before. He had stirred up all of this interest and controversy during his conversations in the temple. Everything that had happened during that week, he's an influential figure. And so the Romans are on high alert about this because it's a time of high national interest in Israel. It's a Passover week. And so people are excited about their nation and they're excited about their God. And so the Romans are very aware of this. And so if there's any possibility that this guy is going to bring about an uprising, they're going to send some soldiers to make sure that doesn't happen. And so they, they do that. They want to make sure that this arrest goes smoothly. And these Roman soldiers are well armed. So imagine Jesus and his disciples have entered into this very familiar garden that they know, an olive grove, and there's walls around it. They've entered into this. Maybe they're talking, maybe they're praying, and they begin to hear the sound of approaching soldiers and lots of them. And they're cut off, and the Roman soldiers and the Jewish soldiers are carrying torches and weapons, and they enter into the garden. Look what Jesus does in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? So here's what you need to understand from this. Jesus does not stumble into trouble with the authorities. This is not an accident of history that he gets arrested. John makes it very clear. He knows everything that's about to happen. He is fully aware that they are coming, that they are there to arrest him, and he knows what's going to happen to him. And he knows all of this because all of it has been planned. Peter preaches about this in the book of Acts. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was not caught up in a political struggle where he eventually lost out. They do not take him by force. It's not because there are 400 Roman soldiers there that they're able to capture him. Look what he does. He steps forward and initiates with authority by asking them who they are seeking. Jesus is in charge here. He's the one that has control. And they answer him in verse 5. They answered him, Jesus Of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, Jesus' answer in English here reads, I am he, but in Greek, the language that is used could simply be read and probably should be read simply, I am. Notice what happens in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, in the book of Isaiah, there's only one individual who uses this name for himself. And of course, you know who that is. It's Yahweh God, the only true God. Jesus has used this before in the Gospel of John to indicate his deity. And here, it has the full effect that an encounter with deity will have on someone. I mean, what happens in the Old Testament when people encounter deity? They fall on their face. They're overcome and overwhelmed. And that's exactly what happens to this group of soldiers here. They draw back and fall down. 
Now think about what's going on here. If Jesus can overpower this group of soldiers by simply speaking a couple of words and pronouncing his name, then he can certainly defeat them. He can do whatever he wants. He can destroy them. He can take off with his disciples while they're on the ground and trying to recover from this. He can do whatever he wants here. He's in complete control. But what does he do? Look at verse 7. 7 through 9. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So what does he do? He uses his power and his authority to command his disciples that they be let go. He's promised this. Back in his prayer in John 17, just a page earlier, John 17, 12, he says this, while I was with them, speaking of the disciples, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So he uses his authority to command that his disciples be let go. One author put it this way, describing this whole scene. The king was not being captured. He was giving himself over to his enemies. And yet, in the midst of this display of power and control and of authority, as so often happens with followers of Christ, and maybe this even happens with some of us, we know he's in control, we know he has the power and the authority, and then we try to take things into our own hands. We try to do it our way. We ignore his power, we ignore his authority, and we think that our methods are better and more productive. And that's what we find Peter doing in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now it says sword here. This is probably a small dagger. And think about the circumstances for Peter. He is facing down hundreds of well-armed and well-trained soldiers. Kudos for bravado, right? (laughs) I mean, noble effort. But even in that noble effort, he's completely missing the point. And that's what we don't want to emulate here. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in verse 11. God has bigger plans for this. Look at verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now Jesus uses this particular imagery here of drinking a cup to describe his death. Why does he do that? Well, he's taking this image from the Old Testament, as you might have suspected. There's several places that talk about drinking a cup that God gives to someone or to a group of people, but I want to look at one in particular. You don't need to turn there, but there are a couple of verses in Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah 51, verses 17, and then verse 22. God is speaking here to Israel. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord. And what type of cup is it? It's the cup of his wrath. 
who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. When did this happen for Israel? It happened in the exile. They sinned and they sinned and they sinned and God's wrath was poured out on them. And the experience of their judgment and of their punishment and of their exile, God describes as giving them a cup that they are then to drink, a cup of his wrath. And it's interesting here in verse 22, in Isaiah 51, which is a passage that is part of a whole section that's anticipating the future, and looking ahead to the arrival of God's kingdom, it's interesting that God says here to Israel that you won't drink this cup anymore. Now, why would that be the case? Well, that would be the case because Jesus says here that his purpose all along has been to take that cup out of his people's hands, to drink that cup himself as their substitute in their place. And that's what he's saying here. He's going to suffer as if he were an evildoer, as if he were the one deserving of exile. He's going to go into exile for them, for his people. One of my favorite hymns, and we sing it here, is the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. And I love the second verse in particular of this hymn, and I think it speaks exactly to what Jesus is saying he's going to do here. And I didn't put the words up there. Bummer. But I'll read them to you. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. And then here's the line. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. God's righteous, holy, perfect justice, his anger, genuine wrath, is satisfied. It is over for you because Jesus drank this cup willingly. John's going to make that point again in another way in verse 14. He's going to draw our attention back to the purpose that Christ has in his death. And he does this as Jesus is arrested and is taken to the house of the high priest. Look at verse 12. So we lead up to verse 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So it's the Jewish soldiers who take him and arrest him ultimately. The Romans head back to their barracks. Everything's under control, at least for the time being. And so the Jewish soldiers bind him and take him away. And so his trial begins at the house of the high priest. And they take him here to Annas. Look at verse 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, what's going on here? So, of course, Caiaphas is actually the high priest at this time. And it's his father-in-law, Annas, who they take Jesus to first. Why? Well, Annas had been the high priest, but then the Romans had taken it away from him and had given it over to a series of other individuals, all of whom were related to him. 
And so you can think of Annas as sort of like the godfather of the high priestly family here. He's the power behind the whole thing. And so he's very influential and very important. And so they naturally take it to, take Jesus to him. So the Jews take him there and notice the comment that John makes in verse 14 about Caiaphas. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Remember this? John drew our attention to this all the way back in chapter 11. And I want you to flip back there with me. John 11, verse 45 is where we're going to start. 11.45. After Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, remember this story? And of course, everyone is in a tizzy over this because it's a pretty significant event. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. But here's the thing. We just talked about Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath for the Jewish people, which is promised in Isaiah chapter 51. But look what John says here. In verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's wrath, not just for Jews, but for the children of God who are scattered abroad and who are Gentiles and who are all over the earth, people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And he's going to drink that cup so that God's wrath is satisfied and so that they can enter into eternal life. And that has been his message all along, all throughout the gospel. That has been his message, and that message has been consistently rejected, and that gets us to our second foundation here that we need to understand. Though rejected... Jesus made in his life and ministry the purpose of all of it very, very clear. Though rejected, Jesus made the purpose of his ministry clear. And this is in verses 15 to 27. Now, when we get to this section, Jesus has been brought to Annas' house, to the high priest. And when you look at the, the events that are going to unfold there, you need to understand the structure of how this fits together in order to understand the message that John wants us to get out of this, okay? So John is not writing this in a haphazard fashion, and you'll see that. He's piecing this story together in order to make a particular point. There's a message that he's sending even through the way this is structured. So Jesus has been taken to the high priest's house, and in all likelihood, Annas and Caiaphas had two houses that shared a central courtyard. 
So they lived near each other and they share a courtyard. And it's in verses 15 through 18 that we find Peter and another disciple following the entourage and following Jesus into that courtyard. So let me read these verses and then we'll talk about the structure of this passage. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now, this is John, the apostle. That he's, he's referring to himself here. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in, into the courtyard. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So Jesus, or Jesus is inside and then John helps Peter get into the courtyard to stay as close as he can to what's happening. And here Peter is questioned by a servant and he flat out denies that he is one of Jesus's disciples. Now, after the whole thing with the sword and the ear and all of that, this is a little unexpected for this type of thing to happen. However, if you go back to John 13, Jesus had predicted that this would happen. John 13, beginning in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, which is probably what he thought he was doing with the sword and the ear thing. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus predicts this, and now it's coming to pass. I mean, what happens to Peter here? I mean, how can he go from being so bold to whimpering and shutting down and denying the Lord with a simple question. Was he one of Jesus's followers? He's been so bold and confident. Why deceive? Why lie in the face of pressure here? And scripture doesn't tell us exactly what happens, but there are a lot of options. It could be a sense of self-preservation. Maybe he thought he would be taken and killed if he admits that he's a follower of Christ. It could be fear of pain, a desire to be comfortable. It could just be shock at what has happened that evening. I mean, a pretty dramatic circumstance there. But as this whole process of denial begins, it's not going to be the last time that Peter caves into pressure and denies the Lord. And we'll get to the rest of his denials, but I want to show you the structure of how this is set up here. John interrupts Peter and his denials and moves the scene inside to Jesus and Jesus being questioned. So you got Peter outside being questioned, and now you've got Jesus inside being questioned by Annas. And so what you've got here is you have the passage set up like a sandwich. Peter and his circumstance in the courtyard are the outside pieces, and Jesus and his trial and his questioning are the, is the inside. Peter is outside being questioned and denying the truth, and Jesus is inside being questioned and responding openly and honestly 
and speaking the truth. And John has set it up this way so that we read these two accounts together. They're related to each other. The same thing is happening to both men and their responses are different. And the middle part of this is the core that John wants us to focus on. That's the central, most important part of this. And so what you're supposed to do as you read this is you're meant to contrast Peter's failing and deceit and denial with Jesus's commitment to truth and clarity. And so let's look what happens to Jesus. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So Annas has two concerns here, right? The disciples of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. He asks about his disciples because he's probably worried that Jesus has amassed a huge following that are going to try and rebel against Rome during Passover. And so there's a political concern about his followers. And yet the core is the teaching. He wants to make a theological point, and he has theological concerns about what Jesus has taught and done. Jesus responds in verse 20. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Jesus has been the same in private with his disciples, that's the point here, as he has been in public. He has made his teaching clear in the temple and in the synagogues. Literally, thousands of people have heard it, which is why he says what he says in verse 21. Look there. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me when I said to them what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, you need to understand something about a Jewish trial here that will make sense of what's about to happen to Jesus. In a Jewish trial, the whole thing was focused on the witnesses. You were supposed to have witnesses that would testify to the guilt or the innocence of the accused. You were not supposed to directly question the one being accused. They, that was not a part of this. And so what Annas should have been doing, according to Jewish tradition, to the, the rule of the day, is he should have been amassing witnesses from people who heard Jesus and letting them speak into the situation and accuse Jesus of the wrong that had been done. And so when Jesus says this in verse 21, this is an open rebuke to him. I mean, he's not backing down at all. And again, it shows us that he's still very much in control of the situation. He's not going to let him get away with this without accusing him of the wrong that he's doing. And the open rebuke is why the soldier responds the way he does in verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answers and places the burden of proof back on this officer, verse 23. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? It's interesting here that Jesus uses the word bear witness. That phrase has been used throughout the Gospel of John. And this is what John the Baptist did about Jesus. And this is what Jesus has done about his own work and ministry. Jesus tells us in John 5 that the Old Testament scriptures bear witness to him, that he bears witness through his works to who he is, that even the Father bears witness to him. And so the burden of proof here, Jesus is placing it on those who would deny the clarity of his ministry. 
Those who would say, well, he's not really God. He isn't really who he says he is. Jesus would say, hey, you bear witness. The burden of proof is on you. Explain the works that I've done. Explain the teaching that I've done. Explain the way the Father approves of me and the relationship I have with him. You bear witness to the truth because I have made it abundantly clear through my ministry. And so what this means for you and I is we can read the gospel accounts and have absolute confidence in what they tell us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is clear in these accounts, and the accounts are historically reliable. They speak the truth. And so we can go to them and build our faith on the Christ that is presented to us in these gospels. So Annas realizes he's not getting anywhere. Look at verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now the scene shifts back to the courtyard. And remember the contrast between Jesus and Peter. Peter gets asked two more times if he's with Jesus, 25 to 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, just as Jesus had predicted for Peter, a rooster crowed. Now this is tragic. Three denials from Peter, a guy who seemed to be so bold and so committed to the Lord Jesus. You hate to see him buckle under the pressure of the circumstances and deny the Lord. And yet, there's one important detail in this that we sort of read over that I want to go back and draw your attention to. John, who wrote this gospel, I think gave us a clue in this story as to how to read it. And here's what he did. If you look back up in verse 18... John was an eyewitness of this, and he noticed something that was a little bit unique about the situation in the courtyard. Verse 18 says, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. And he makes that observation about the circumstances that are there and mentions that it's a charcoal fire. Now there's one other place, only one, in John's gospel where a charcoal fire is mentioned. You could probably imagine where that is. I want you to flip ahead to John chapter 21. In John 21, you have the resurrected Christ helping Peter and his disciples catch a ton of fish. They're out in the boat, they're fishing, Jesus is on the shore, and they catch a ton of fish. Peter realizes that it's the Lord, and what does he do in typical Peter fashion? Right? He jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. And when he gets to shore, what does he find there? Look at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. I mean, Peter shows up to shore, and I wonder if he remembers when he approaches this charcoal fire what had happened just a few days earlier around a different charcoal fire. And he remembers that he had denied the Lord. And the beauty of John intentionally linking these two accounts together is that you and I are supposed to read them together. We're not supposed to read about Peter and his denial 
and his rebellion in his heart against the Lord and just leave it there and say, what a tragedy. But what we're supposed to do is keep reading and understand that Jesus died and in victory rose again to offer forgiveness of sins. And then he shows back up on the scene here in grace and kindness and questions Peter around the same charcoal fire that Peter had denied him at. And he restores him and shows him grace and forgiveness. He restores him to fellowship and to service here. And John wants us to read these two accounts together. And I think when you put them together, what you ultimately end up with is you give a very real circumstance where Jesus does what he said he wanted to do in John 17, 26. It's the passage we started with this morning. What does Jesus say? I will continue to make God's name known to you that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so Jesus, in restoring Peter and forgiving his sins and bringing him back into fellowship and service, is continuing to showcase God's character and his love to his disciples. He's making his grace and forgiveness and restoration known. And here's what he's looking for in response to that for you and I. To see the offer of grace and forgiveness and restoration through the gospel and through his work and to respond in humble repentance of sin. To recognize the wrong we have done and that we cannot save ourselves. Instead, we will continue to deny him and to turn from our sin, to repent of our sin and then turn to him and place even just a mustard seed of faith and trust in him. That's what he's looking for. That's what he wants this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for this grace that you showed to Peter. And we're thankful for the clarity of your ministry and the offer of forgiveness and grace that we have through you being willingly arrested and willingly subjected to the cross. And so I pray this morning as we see all of this that you would uh, help us to respond in love and affection and joy at the work that you have done and help us to walk out of here this week encouraged and built up because of who you are and the grace that you have shown to us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.